Well, good evening, everybody. So glad that you guys could come. I know that those of you that are Niner fans are super excited today. <laughs> so I'm hoping that you also find my message as thrilling. Will you be throwing a ball at I will not. What I will be doing, Adam, thank you for the segue. <clears throat> so I'm going to be teaching on question 45 from our uh, Baptist Catechism. Question 45 says, what did God at first reveal to man for the rule of his obedience? And the answer to that is the rule which God at first revealed to man for his obedience was the moral law. And so in setting up this lesson, I realized that there were three things that I really wanted to do. And so hopefully... As I tell you those things, you'll notice them as we go through, and I'll help you with a roadmap of kind of my thinking through this. So <clears throat> the three things that I want you guys to see from today is that, uh, is to, that I'm going to try to give some explanation to the law so that we have an understanding of it, the Christian response to the law, and then finally, the law's role in our salvation, and so I want to start off and talk about the three uses of the law. And one of the things that <clears throat> teachers learn in their teaching uh, classes, and Valerie might remember these, um, is that you sometimes try to come up with little devices that people can do or sing or say that helps them remember something. So it activates a different part of your brain rather than you listening to me and me talking. And so... I want, I want to give you guys uh, some little things that might help you remember the three uses of the law. The first is that the law is a mirror. And so I know all of you have seen those little hand mirrors. Everybody put your hands up, put your left hand up like this, and your right hand swoosh across, just like it's a mirror that you might be looking at yourself. Maybe you got a really fly haircut, or maybe you just look super marvelous. I'm using, I'm using slang from the 90s. Give me a break. Okay? And so... <laughs> We want to think of the law as a mirror and that that mirror, through that mirror, we get to see an accurate picture of ourself and also of the God who, uh, for who he really is. So the law is a mirror of ourselves and it is, a, and it is also a mirror of who God is. Okay? The second is that the law is a curb. It restrains evil. So for a curve, if everybody want to put their hands like this and just kind of think of a curb that goes around us. Thank you to those people in, my back, in the back. You are my favorite people. Okay. <laughs> it is a curb, just like a curb at a grocery store um, keeps you from maybe rolling further into the other person's spot. So it kind of stops your tires. Um, God's law restrains evil. Okay. It keeps us from being as evil as we could. Um, I'm a teacher, so I live with rules a lot of the time, and I deal with 96 fifth graders, and I have a lot of rules that are very strictly enforced so that my kids stay within those parameters. Now, they don't stay perfectly in those parameters, unfortunately, but they stay much closer to the parameters that I've set for them because my rule system is tight and in place. And if you've ever been to the grocery store, you sometimes have seen parents whose rule system is not very, like, set in place. The curb is non-existent. And you just have a bunch of baby's kids roaming around being crazy. And yes, that was a 90s movie reference. And so finally, our last mnemonic that we're going to use, or not, not really a mnemonic, but our last device that we're going to use is that for... Um, that the law for us is also a guide. And for a guide, we're going to have a little person. could be a man or a lady. I like to think of it as those funny um, people from the Jungle Book Cruise where they drop their corny jokes and they're guiding you on that river tour. But the law is also a guide for us. And that, um, and that God's law is a guide for believers. Nathan Bingham states that to the believer... The law should be seen as a family code. The law tells the believer what their heavenly father is happy with. Obeying the law is evidence of our love for Christ. 
if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So here in that, here in Jesus's very basic, straightforward statement, we see an if-then statement. I took one semester of coding because I thought I wanted to be a computer coder. And one of the most basic ways that they had you kind of think about how to make a code was an if-then statement. If this, then that. Okay, and so Jesus is giving us that very clear statement. If you love me, then you will keep my commandments. So within those three things that the law does for us, we're going to talk about another three things circling the law. This time we're going to talk about the three spheres of the law. So we see this law broken down or kind of we segment it into three different um, areas. The, uh, so the first sphere is the moral law. The moral law has existed forever before Adam and Eve were created before the heavens and the earth were created, the moral law existed. And that's because the moral law is derived or an extension of God's character. So just as our God is eternal, he's eternally truthful, he's immutable. These laws that come from it, that make up the moral law are also immutable. So God is not a a God that lies. So lying is a breaking of the, of one of the moral commandments that God has given us. Lying is always wrong. There's not a time where it's okay to lie. And there and the the moral law being the 10 commandments makes up those for us. The moral law its requirements and its obligations exist for all people at creation. So there is not a single person who exists that the moral law is not is not they're not subject under to. So every single person that has ever existed or will exist is under the moral law. The moral law was codified for Israel in the Ten Commandments. Even though God writes the moral law onto everyone's heart, Israel was given a special blessing that God came and gave that law to them specifically um, rather than just it existing. We know that it's in our heart. Um, Israel at Sinai, God gives it to Moses. But for all of us, even people that live out in the bush and they've never heard the gospel, they know it's wrong to murder. They know that it's wrong to steal. There's no, um, there, there's, there's no society where they're like, it's okay to always murder. Now, they might have a society where it's okay to murder those people, but they do even set limits on, you can't murder these people. There are also civic and ceremonial laws as part of these three spheres of the law. The ceremonial and the civic laws were established with Israel specifically. So dietary laws, um, civil laws that they had had set up, those are for Israel only. So those civil laws don't apply to us. I, we are allowed to eat lobster. Okay? You are allowed to have fabric that has two types of fabric in it. But those laws were set for Israel for a time. Uh, like the moral law, Israel did have to keep, ha, did have to keep the, these laws to maintain their part of the Mosaic Covenant. And ancient Jews would have looked at all of these spheres as one thing. They would not have delineated them the way that I am right now for us. They would look at them as all-encompassing of one thing. For us in the 21st century, though, we would look at them, we would break them apart, I think, to have a better understanding of their roles, what they were used for, who they apply to. Um, But for Israel, they all applied at the same time. Now, God's, God's laws come in two categories. So again, we're delving in to be more specific about God's laws because we need to understand, and I think this will help us, I think this will help us get to the point where we can see, um, where we can answer those questions where sometimes you have unbelievers come and say, well, if you believe in God's laws, how come you eat shellfish? Because the Bible says you can't. So you're, so you're picking and choosing God's laws. I think if we see, I think if we see that, 
uh, God's laws are broken in two categories. I think that helps us be able to answer that and at least be consistent in our understanding, even if those people aren't happy with how we're breaking that down. And so God's, God has two categories for his law. And the first one is that is dealing with God, uh, laws that um, laws that are given that are part of God's character. Okay. So, and, um, and then the second is laws that are given that are part of God's divine purpose. So some laws are based on God's character and some laws are created for God's divine purpose. And we'll break those down. We'll talk about those next. Moral law is based on God's character. Every person knows it's wrong to murder. Everyone knows it's wrong to steal. They are just laws that God has placed inside every person. All of the moral laws are representations of God's character. We know this because God has imprinted the moral law on the hearts of every person. We see that in Romans 2.15. We can look at laws given by God in two categories. Laws given on the basis of God's character and laws given on for his divine purpose. The moral law is based on God's character. Every person knows that it's wrong to murder. Every person knows that it's wrong to steal. Everyone knows these things. The moral law does not need to be given from person to person to know that it's in effect. Paul explains in Romans 2.14 that the Gentiles were not given the moral law the way that Israel was, but they understood it and they even lived by it. They knew it was wrong to murder. God did not need to come and deliver that to them to know that it is wrong to steal, that it is wrong to lie, that it is, long, that it is wrong to cheat. They would recognize that they are the, or they would recognize that they are some people who you should not murder or steal from, even if they justified murdering and stealing from the tribe over one valley, they would still say that there are some people no you 're not allowed to do this. Their sin would allow them to do those things to other people, but even then they would recognize again that there was a curb on their evil they could not do evil to everyone. This lack of codification from God to them specifically does not mean that they are not under punishment for breaking God's moral law. Romans 2.12, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. The Gentiles may not have been blessed the way that Israel was blessed by God coming and giving them the law specifically, but the Gentiles were still given it and held accountable to it. Thus, we see that the moral law, unlike the civil and ceremonial laws, were not for the theocracy of Israel only. The Gentile nations that were not part of God's chosen people as he worked, as he worked his plan through Israel, they still also receive the blessings that come with God's moral law. That curbing of evil is a blessing to the unbeliever, even as they don't see it. They get, they get some protection from God's moral law that, that people know it's wrong to steal. They get protection from God's law that people do understand it's wrong to murder, even if apart from God's, from God's saving grace, those people still commit sins that are against God's moral law. The moral law is based, um, the moral law also exposes our sin. We see that we've sinned because we see this law. I know it is wrong to steal. If I do it, I know I'm breaking a law. The unsaved might not be able to tell you, oh, that's God's moral law. It's imprinted on my heart and I'm suppressing it and I'm still going to do evil. But they, but they know that it's wrong, even if they couldn't tell you why or where they understood it from. They might say, oh, society tells me that it's wrong. But society still has to get it from a place. And that place comes from God putting it in us to understand that. The moral law also tells us how to live holy lives. If we're believers... We should want to be obedient to the law. I should not want to covet Nick's clipboard or Christine's hat or John's cool clothes that he wears on Sunday and I always secretly like. I should be content with the things that God gives me because God is taking care of me. 
Okay? Those laws aren't just for not what to do. Those laws are for what I should do. I should not murder. Therefore, I should be against abortion. I should not steal. I should only put worship to God. That, does mean, that means I shouldn't be putting it into myself or into society or into any number of things that people run to put their worship on. The moral law also points us to Christ. And the moral law has a, be- has a benefit to the person that uses it rightly. So those of us that are saved and living our lives that the, way that, the way that matches God's character, we receive blessing from that. The civil and the ceremonial laws based on God's divine uh, purpose are a little bit different. These laws were temporary. So the ceremonial laws and the civic laws dealt with a specific place and a specific time and a specific people. When God's purpose was fulfilled through these laws, these laws were ended. An example of that would be the dietary laws. So those laws were enacted by God for a purpose with Israel. And when Christ fulfilled those laws, those laws could be repealed. None of the laws that fell under the, under the civic or the ceremonial spheres, when ended, when abrogated, did um, ending those laws did not go against God's character. So he could end those. So when we see that uh, God comes to Peter and he lays out the gigantic picnic basket full of all these things and Peter's kind of shocked about, I can't eat these things. And God's like, you, you can eat them. It's fine. Everything is okay. They're not sinful. That did in no way violence to God's character. He remained holy even as these laws that Israel was under covenant promise that they had to follow, even as those were being ended, God remained true and God remained holy and God remained upright in his dealings with those people. God saying you could now, so in, in comparison, God's saying now that it's okay to lie. My son came. He lived a perfect sinless life. He, you can now lie. But we don't see any of God's moral laws being changed here because that would do violence to his character. He could not, he could not end a law that was a result or a derivation uh, that flowed out from his character. He just can't. So we see that there's nowhere where it is okay for us to lie. Now, the God of Islam, he's okay with you lying. In fact, it's looked at as you are getting over, you're being clever. But the God of the Bible, the one true God, that has never been a thing where you can do what is evil and it be all of a sudden changed to be what is good. How should we live in the 21st century? How should we live in the 21st century with a proper view of the law? We're Americans in the 21st century. Even if I use quotes and slang from the 90s, we still live in the 21st century. Here in America... Americans loathe being told what to do by anyone. America is an antinomian paradise. Antinomianism is the view that because a believer lives in grace, they're free to disregard the moral law. The word antinomianism comes from two ancient Greek words, anti, anti or anti, meaning against, and namas, meaning the law. So we would see antinomianism as against the law, not the law. You think of the law in a negative light and poo-poo that and move it away. This is blatant heresy. Believers are not outside the obligation of the moral law. Just because Christ died, was buried, and was raised on the third day does not give us license to leave the moral law. 
That moral law is God's character. It flows from his character. We are not allowed to just depart from that and live under this idea that, oh, grace covers, grace covers my sin. I can then do what I want. We should not want to be outside of God's moral law or want to be away from it or want to break God's law. We should be like the psalmist saying in Psalm 119, oh, how I love your law. We need to see God's law for what it really is, an extension of who he is. We should want to do and, and radiate God's moral law because it's, it's, it's him written down in a form that we, can, that we can try our best to live under and to radiate ourselves. We should look at God and recognize that he is only worthy of worship. We should make sure that our lives demonstrate that he really is worthy of our worship. And if people saw us and knew us, they could pick out because, oh, I know that that person is a believer. They are, it's clear. Look at their dealings. They tell me they're a Christian because I think when, especially like with coworkers or with people that we spend time with, they get to know that because, oh, what are you doing this weekend? Oh, we have church on Sunday or, oh, we have a game night at our church. So they start to recognize, oh, that person at least goes to church. And then they start to see our lives. They should clearly see that the things of God are important to us, that our walk matches our talk. Paul describes the law as holy, righteous, and good in Romans 7. Believers are not under the law as in the covenant of works. So I don't have to keep God's moral law to stay within the covenant of grace. I'm not going to be able to keep God's law. I've already broken it. I broke it by my very nature as I was, as I was conceived. I was already going to break God's law. And I'm positive before I could even walk or talk that I had already broken God's law just by being a kid. And if you knew me through high school or in my early 20s or even my early 30s, or if you hang out with me for more than 25 minutes, <laughs> there will be a time where you see that I break God's law. So luckily for me and for all the redeemed, we are not we are not maintaining our salvation because we can keep God's moral law because it's very clear that we can't. We are not under the law, but under grace. The, anti the antinomian would rightly claim, citing Romans 6.15. However, Paul later in that chapter goes on to say, for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to what? And to lawlessness, Leading to what? More lawlessness. So now, so we see that he's talking about what you were doing and what you should be doing now. So now, present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. Paul is not describing here lawlessness as an attribute that the believer should ever aspire to. So the antinomian in him, the antinomian who's looking for the law to be set aside so that they can abound in this grace while living their lives, doing whatever, that is, that is not going to work here. Paul is not giving us license for that. But rather, Paul ties lawlessness to impurity. But points, but points believers forward to righteousness. If lawlessness is being tied to impurity, logically we have to conclude that righteousness is being tied to law-keeping. Again, this law-keeping is not in any way us keeping or maintaining or earning our salvation. It is the outflow of the work that the Spirit has put inside of us. The sanctification that Paul taught us a month and a half ago is is God driven anyways? We are along for that blessed ride, but God is the one who's driving all aspects of that. So this law keeping is not in any way maintaining or earning anything, but it is an outflowing of what is going on inside of us 
through the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul discusses how he works to become all things to all men so that he might win some. When talking about preaching to the Gentiles, he states, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. Here, Paul is making it clear to note that he remains not outside the law of God, but goes on to point out that he is still under the law of Christ. As believers, we are not saved by keeping the law. We are saved only because Christ kept the law. We keep the moral law because God commands it, and keeping the moral law pleases God. We are under it, we are under it as a rule of life, not a rule of works. Paul shuts the door to the notion of antinomianism in Romans 3.31 saying, do we then overthrow the law by, by the faith? By no means. On the contrary, not only do we not throw out the law, we uphold it because of our faith. To the, to the believer saying that we are not to worry about the law because of grace, ask yourself this. Why are you so eager to disregard what your heavenly father has told you pleases him? If the moral law flows from the character of God, what does disregarding it say about your view of the one it flows from? If Jesus is only your savior, antinomianism can be acceptable. However, if Christ is both savior and master, antinomianism is not a place that you can land at. How can we have a master if there is nothing we have to do to be obedient to? I'm not calling for legalism. Nicholas Batzig, writing about legalism, states, Legalism is by definition an attempt to add anything to the finished work of Christ. It is, the tr it is to trust in anything other than Christ and his finished work for one standing before God. Following God's moral law is not legalism, it's obedience. If we look at the moral law as if it's for another people, we're in need of correction. Some in the church today look at the Old Testament as if it's only for ancient Israel. And as Christians, we only need Jesus and the New Testament. So we have some in the, in the church today who have this view of all I need is Jesus. And to some extent, that's true. All you need is Jesus. Jesus is the only thing that any true Christian needs on one level. But that does not dis, like disregard or throw out the Old Testament or what, is, what God states in the Old Testament. There are things that, don't, that no longer apply to current believers that belonged uh, in obligation to ancient Israel. But we need to not throw out the Old Testament and only focus on Jesus as some, as some would encourage us to. We want to not unhitch the Old Testament as some even say. Andy Stanley is one who was talking about focusing less on the Old Testament and focusing more on the New Testament in Jesus. And I think that there are some dangerous things that go on when we start looking at the Bible as something that we can take apart and ignore some pieces and focus on other pieces. God gave us the whole thing for a reason. We need to take it all in for our own good and because it's right. So four things that I think are dangerous about unhitching the Old Testament. First, it minimizes what Christ used to declare who he was. We see all through the New Testament, Jesus talking about himself and using scripture to show Israel who he is and his mission sent by the father. But he wasn't citing things like 1 Corinthians or Luke or Acts or John. He was using Genesis, Deuteronomy, Isaiah, um, other passages throughout all of the Old Testament. 
So if Jesus is using the Old Testament to declare to us who he is, I don't think that it's something that we need to set aside or downplay or not give the reverence, respect, love, and solemn focus on at all. I think it's something that we absolutely need to look at. Another problem with unhitching the Old Testament and looking at it as it's something that we don't need now today as believers is that it takes away evidence of God being the God of promises. All the way from Genesis, right at the fall, the, mo- the moment essentially after the fall, we see God making promises. He promises a redeemer through the woman that would crush the head of the serpent. And throughout Genesis, Exodus, into like Leviticus, Numbers, through the whole thing, we see God making promises and commitments to Israel, to Abraham, to people of Abraham's seed, to the nations being blessed through Abraham. Lot of promises being made by God and also promises being kept by God through, through that whole Old Testament. So taking that away and only looking at the New Testament, we are, missing, we are missing loads of God being a God that is a promise-keeping God. Instead, without that, we might see glimpses of God keeping some promises, but we have no basis for seeing that, oh, I can place my trust in this Jesus Christ because God promised one to come who would do the things that Jesus did all the way back from the, from right after the fall. Also, unhitching the Old Testament makes man the one that decides what is needed to be known about God. If we start looking at the Bible as portions that we can ignore or push down, we've taken God off of his throne of of declaring who he is, and we placed ourselves on the throne to declare what we want to know about you. I don't need this, but I do like this, so I'm going to have that. When in actuality, God is being creator, is on the throne, and is in charge of everything. We are subject to what he wants us to know about who he is. And for us to decide, oh no, I don't need that portion, or yes, I do like that portion, I want that, that's us playing the role of creator not the role of creature, which we were designed to be. And then finally, it removes the, the reason why man even needs the gospel. Without the Old Testament, and specifically without the moral law, why do I need to have a savior? Why do I need Jesus? From that fateful moment in the garden, man has been in need of a savior. Adam's transgression caused all of mankind to be under both a physical and spiritual death sentence that that we can't pay. Adam's breaking of the moral law condemned mankind to separation from God. For the glory of his own name, though, God made a way for the very people who broke his laws to be redeemed. God could not set aside or let it slide, or have a mulligan on man's sin. God is holy. So a holy God has to have justice. And for every sin, it has to be paid for. God just can't be like, oh, I'm going to just set that aside, and I'm going to ignore it, and we'll sweep it under the rug, and we'll act like it never happened. No. Every sin is a direct violation against a holy God. That sin has to be atoned for by someone. Every sin is being atoned for by someone. The believed get to have their sin atoned for by Christ. The unsaved, they will pay for their own sin in hell. A holy God can only abide with what is holy. When the Holy Spirit opens the eyes of someone showing them and convincing them that they have broken God's laws, sinners recognize their lawlessness for what it really is. It's an affront to a holy God 
The recognition drives those to whom the Spirit is saving to the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who bore every sin for everyone, uh, for every one of his holy people. In conclusion, the law shows us what God is and what we are apart from his Son's propitiation for us. Understanding the law leads to a better, more intimate love of the Savior for the believer. The non-believer is also blessed as it offers them some safety from evil that the law curbs in the world. It also is a blessing in conjunction with the Holy Spirit pointing the unsaved to Christ. I'll take questions if you have them. Uh, okay, I, I think I know what you're asking. Let me see if I can answer it. And then if I didn't, ask it again. Um, when I was talking about <clears throat> the God of Islam, Allah, you're allowed to lie. If, if it's to get over, to help Islam get over in an area, it is okay for you to lie. Where I don't see that anywhere in scripture that God's telling us it's okay to lie at any time. I think God is a God of truth. Therefore, we need to be a people of truth. And that lying is, is not something that I think God condones in any way. We don't see a time where God's saying, go ahead and lie now. I know I told you not to lie, but it's okay now. Go lie now. It's okay. I, the rules have changed. Well, they haven't. Okay? They, we're bound to that at all times because we have a God that's, that's truthful. God doesn't lie to us. We shouldn't be people that lie. Um, as for your second question, can you re- repeat that, your second one? I mean, I kind of thought I asked one. Um, I, I don't really recall. But now I have another question since you said that. So, okay. Um, the the harlot Rahab, so basically when she sent those messages another way, um, wouldn't you call that godly deception? Or am I wrong? Or, you know, what would you call that? Are you talking about Rahab yeah. hiding the soldiers? Right. I would say that because I would say that I don't think that that qualifies as a lie. Okay. I think she was I think she was protecting God's people in them doing what God had commanded them to do. So just like I wouldn't if for some reason <laughs> This is closer than it probably has been in our lifetimes before. If for some reason we had to have underground church and somebody was and an authority was asking me, are you attending an underground church? Do you know where one is? No, I don't. And I don't know. Is that a lie? I don't think it is because I think we are responsible to keep our church safe. So in a in a setting like that, I don't think that's a lie in the sense where um, – I don't want to pick up Christine because I want to goof off and she's annoying. So I just shine around and be like, oh, I'm tired when I'm really I'm doing something annoying. else. Oh, you're annoying. <laughs> so, Chris, do you see that there's a difference between those two things? One, I'm blatantly sinning against Christine. Right. The other, I am upholding and, and I think doing what God would have me to do, which is to keep uh, people safe. Yeah, I, I, I just look at those as they're so different. <laughs> I know when I'm lying. There are different, but labels are labels, and labels do help identify things. So, you know, if you don't want to call it lying, that's fine, but at least we understand the core concept, which is why I call it godly deception. And, you know, maybe I'm wrong. careful to call stuff godly deception. I think, do we really owe people that information? Not bear false witness against your neighbor. Do I owe my neighbor certain information? Yes. Do I owe him all information without exception? 
No. So I would agree with Steve. Yeah. If I don't think I don't think Rahab needed to give that information to the people questioning her. So holding back wasn't a lie. If somebody comes and asks you if you are attending an underground church and you say no. Who am I saying no to? Whatever the law, the, you know, the government or whatever. But you're still, by, by lying, you are denying Christ. No. No, not at all. So, so did our did our church because lie? it because it says, it, I think it's in Revelation. It says, "Do not deny Christ." I don't think in that moment you're denying Christ at all. I got a question. So, did our church lie when the help when uh, Mike Provencia died? Right? They say shut down. So, when we come back and worship the week after, are we lying? Do we owe them that information? Or is it a situation where we say we are to obey God rather than man? Well, I'm asking Steve. But. <laughs> I'm sorry, I thought you were asking Christine too. <laughs> uh, no, I don't. I think that's, I think, I don't know that that's lying or telling the truth. I, I, I think that people could look at that as we were being disobedient to the government, but... I don't know that Paul or Nick was, were asked by anybody if we did something and said no. So that I, I don't know that I can answer that. But I don't think we were wrong for coming to church when they were telling us not to. And I certainly don't think that no. we're wrong for choosing to or not to wear masks. And even though apparently until the 15th of February, somebody just told me today that it's the law that if you're in uh, inside a place, it's not your house. You're supposed to wear a mask. I don't. I don't think that that's law-breaking. Right, but this has gone to a point where loving your neighbor is defined as the way the world is defined, right? It's like... They can try. Well, the world is telling us if you aren't doing A, B, and C, you're not loving your neighbor. And so my question is, where does that end? Because from the very beginning of two years ago, we've been... We've been deceived into all kinds of lies. And I think we'd have to take it to scripture, just like the world tells me that it's okay for a man to date a man, but right. I, I, I know that that's wrong because we, we go back to scripture. Right. That, I mean, that's what I would say. So basically, try to sum it up. The government is God's servant, God's deacon, really, what it says in Romans. And so when the government goes outside what God's ordained for them to do or decreed for them, to do in his revealed will, then we're not obligated to, to share the truth with them if they're going to impose upon us harm. Because they're not loving their neighbor as they're supposed to be doing. They're acting outside of their bounds. So when Rahab lied to her government, who was trying to kill the Israelites, it was she was never obligated to tell the truth to them because the government was acting in such a way that they didn't have the revealed authority from God. Same thing with the mask. They can say it's a law. They're not allowed to make that law for the church, especially. So they can kick rocks. That's, that's it. So it's okay to deny God when they ask? How is that? They're not. We're not denying God. We are glorifying God by denying tyrants. Amen. That's the. We are glorifying God by denying tyrants. I think what you're thinking about, Christine, is let's say that let's say we live in a dystopian future where oh, I'm sorry. Let's just say we live in Canada soon, and um, they have me in jail because they didn't like the sermon that I preached to the youth group in June. That would be a prime example of a the sermon Mary that... Huh, the... What? The one on Mary? Yeah. No, not that one. <laughs> the one in June, you were ducking out. Um, they had me in the slammer. And then there, they know I'm a believer. They have, they have the evidence. It's recorded. It's on the interwebs. And, that, and there, they're asking me, do you believe in this? Will you deny this, and I do it there, that's denying Christ. That's a whole different setting than you don't know what I know. You're just trying to get information that you don't have the right to possess. I don't have to give it to you. Those are different things. Hmm? So that's okay to lie then. Yeah, that's, that's much different than... It was like Peter when he denied Christ three times. That was a sin. Yeah. What that is, he's not denying Christ. 
me not giving you something that you don't have the right to have, especially when you're going to use it for evil purposes, that's not me denying it by withholding it from you. And I've now I'm gonna make John mad. <laughs> and I think that this is a very dangerous not dangerous, it's a very tight rope you have to walk and to maintain still being truthful and not falling into sin. Even as there are things that the government does that Christians will oppose, will have to oppose, there are things that we're probably bound to do even if we don't like them sometimes. That's what I that's that's my belief. That's how I see it. There's some stuff that just it, it's dangerous when we just if we just think, oh, I can disregard that. I can disregard that. We have to be very careful about that. We have to it's not something that you do lightly. You have to pray about it. You have to be sure. You have to talk to brothers. Like John would definitely agree with that, and I was just teasing him. Yeah, <laughs> yes, John. So would you say earlier what you were saying about the law is a reflection of God's character, right? That's what yes. Saying. Yeah, yeah, the moral law. Moral law, yes. So, is then the law immutable as God is? I think I think the moral law summed up by the Ten Commandments is immutable. I don't think they there's not a sunset on them going forward, and there was never a sunrise for them to start. They always existed, like even outside of time, like because they flow from. God and they are God's character and God's character doesn't change they don't change so even in heaven we will still have the law don't steal <laughs> we just won't ever have the temptation to steal we just, I just won't steal or lie right. I'll tell you the truth in heaven all the time Christine <laughs> only in heaven? <laughs> I can guarantee for sure in heaven <laughs> just wait 25 minutes Oh, just wait 25 minutes. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Any other questions? Yeah, you said, now what were you saying about it's against the moral law to murder? Yes. But it's okay for these people here to go over here and murder. What I was saying, what I was saying there is. Example of the pavement. Yeah. So everyone knows that it's wrong to murder, and everyone will tell you it's wrong to murder people. But people in their sin will be like, these people, no, you shouldn't do that. But those people over there in that other valley, they've got the resources we want. They're not of us. We can go kill them and take what we want from them. And that's okay? No. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, they're suppressing the truth to get what they want. They're, I mean, we would say they're covetous, and it's leading them to break another commandment, which is murdering, to get oh, what they want. Okay. <laughs> yeah, even as they recognize some truth, they're denying that same truth when they allow themselves to do things that is wrong. Do not murder anyone, Christine. It's okay to murder them. So like our government allows abortions, which is murder. Right. But they don't allow me to murder you. But I could murder you though you want to, huh? That's a bad example. John. So in light of what Paul said about the government you know, they allow abortion, but they don't allow murder, right? Well, so in, in yeah. that sense, yeah. when God's law, when we say that it's a reflection of his character and God is immutable, you know, so is his law, his moral law. So then murder, you know, adultery, bestiality, would you say that the sinner, when he commits those sins, is he still worthy of death as he was you know, in the old covenant, in the same sense, is he still in, in, in trouble with God? Everyone that's outside of Christ is guilty and sentenced to death for every sin. Um, I don't see that changing. Like, But should we execute them? Yeah, I know John, where John stands and... I lean more towards John now than I ever have. I used to think, mm, I think it's probably better that we don't. Who should execute them? The, who, who's the we? John. <laughs> the, the state. I, I'm assuming John would say the state. John is the state. Yeah, the only reason yeah. I ask is because, you know, I think we always have this debate. I mean, I think what the Theonomist is wrong is that they, their goal is to institute these laws, right? And I think as an amillennialist, I say that 
well, whether we institute these laws or not, God is unchanging, and he's never abrogated his laws, so whether they receive death in this life, they will receive it in the life to come. So those who practice such things are worthy of death, as Romans 1 says. Yeah, they'll pay for their sin, or Christ will have paid for, the, paid for that sin. Is it right to differentiate between moral and civil law in that regard, and that the ten the Decalogue doesn't say, if you murder, you have your life taken away. It says, you shall not murder. That's the moral element of it. But then the civil law, not being a part of God's character necessarily, is guidelines on how a particular people in a particular time are supposed to keep that law in check. So the idea of the civil law not being immutable would kind of give you an answer for that. So we can debate back and forth about whether it's the right and best thing to do now in this time with this people, but it doesn't wipe away the fact that the moral law says that murdering is wrong and will be punished. And ultimately, we deserve death for that, for breaking that law. But how our governments are to carry that out. Yeah, we kind of see that, we kind of see that playing out when, you, when we look at the three spheres of the law, ceremonial, uh, civic, and moral. They lay on each other. Probably For Israel, they would lay on each other like a perfect circle. Although we would look at it like a Venn diagram maybe where we see overlaps. But for us, we have one circle, that the moral law that, that we're under and in. Ross? So I'm looking at uh, Romans 2. Uh, you had brought up uh, Romans 2, 15. Uh, but just uh, Romans 2, 12 to 15, I'll just read it. Is what is what is written on the heart different for the non-believer than the believer? Right. I would say no. You would say. I would say no. It, it's the same writing on two hearts: one that is saved and one that is not saved. So, uh, I I used to think that, and I'm I'm just reading that and going back to to verse twelve. Um, for all who have sinned. Without the law, how could you be without the law if the law has been written would, on your heart? I, would, I, think that's pointing, I think that's pointing to uh, si- like the Sinai and God, giving, God coming and actually giving Israel the law. The concept versus the tablet. The yeah, yeah. Those tablets were just codified. God codified those tablets for us to point to what we already knew was in our heart. So what I guess what kind of prompted this is we're as, a, as I was kind of like muddling through this and I go back to the, the New Covenant promise uh, by Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34 ish. Um and verse thirty three, for this is the covenant that I will make with this is Jeremiah speaking in chapter thirty one. Uh, for this is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And then Ezekiel 36, 36-ish. Again, it's uh, Jeremiah being back in Jerusalem and Ezekiel being in exile. 
but he's pretty much preaching and uh, prophesying the same thing. And in chapter 36, he you know, talks about, I will give you a, a heart of flesh. I will remove the heart of stone. So it's so, you know, a heart operation. It's, it just seems like the what is written on the heart of the believer is like the full uh, moral code of God, whereas non-believers have enough to condemn them. Yeah, they have enough to condemn them, but they don't have the entire level of detail, if you will. And, and I, Anyway. I don't know what it says in the Greek there necessarily, but in the, what it's translated as English, it has the work of the law. Yeah, that's what I'm reading. In, in Romans 2.15, uh, yeah. it's saying the works of the law is written on our hearts. It doesn't say the law is written on our hearts. Right. It says the works of the law. So that's what made me start wondering, is it different what is written on people's hearts? The it's a, it's versus the non-believer. If I can, I think it's a veil version of the law, it's the work of the law. So it's still, and so it's where we understand our doctrine of the man's conscience, or sometimes a theologian is called the light of nature in man. So everybody's made in the image of God. They understand these immutable, unchanging moral attributes of God to an extent that's suppressed in their unrighteousness and in their sin. But when a person is born again and that heart of stone is removed out, and heart of flesh is in there, then that law is fully known and the veils it's love goes back to chapter one that you read this morning the idea that men are without excuse right Bye. it's plain before us right but without spiritual life um, we can't love the law it's going to be it's going to be a threat to us to our time. so the, the new heart gives you a life so so the gentiles even keep that as point of the gen and so paul's dealing with He's dealing with the weight of the law condemning everybody in that passage. And so nobody ever keeps it perfectly. But even the Gentiles who don't have the law, they do it sometimes because the work of the law is in our heart, and yet they don't desire to glorify God in that. Right. They don't see their need for Christ. So, so it kind of bewaddles me when you have this like the tribe of cannibals that practice cannibalism. But even in that tribe of cannibals, there are people you're not allowed to eat. They still ha there. There are still rules. You can't eat these people. <laughs> you might be able to eat those people living in the cave two two caves down, but you can't eat the people in this yeah, cave. It could just be a, a civilization of people that they decided to turn their back to God. They know that it's wrong, but they do it because there's some kind of odd joy in it or something. I feel like anyway, we're living in that right now. Seems, yeah. No. Yeah. Okay. no, I. I, I I didn't mean to bring up that last little part of the but the, the, the Gentile versus the, or the believer versus the non-believer, uh, I, I get it. I, thank you, Paul. You yeah. Illuminated. All right. Any other questions? Going on? And I might, and I might, as an unbeliever, follow the law, but I'm following the law because I need Adam not to steal from me. I need Sam not to lie to me. So I'm going to try to be truthful to them because then they have to be nice. They have to reciprocate. Where with the spirit, I'm going to be truthful with Adam and I'm going to not steal from Sam because my Heavenly Father says that those things are wrong. So I'm not going to do it irregardless of what they choose to do to me. I'm not going to do that to them. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. 
you know, the love that Christ has already shown us, right? Mm -hmm. All right. Well, with that, thanks for listening to my uh, lesson. I will close this out in prayer, and then we can chat before a dip. Father, thank you for this evening, Lord. I just thank you for the privilege that you gave me to be able to come and uh, hopefully uh, share your words, Father. God, I thank you for these people that have come because they're not interested in what I have to say, but they are interested in, about you, Father, and that needs to be the desire of our hearts is, is to come because you're worth coming for. You're worth living for. Father, we thank you for uh, this building that you gave us, Lord, even the renovations, even if the place is dusty. God, it's still, it's still holy. It's still here because you put it here for your mission in Antioch, Father. God, I pray for our week this week, Lord, that um, Lord willing, you bring us back next Sunday. God, keep us safe through this week. Give us opportunities to live for you here in Antioch and the places that we work, God. Lord, I also just one more time just lift up the prayers that uh, people brought. We know that you're a God that doesn't just want to hear us talk, but you're a God that cares about us, Lord. You're a God that doesn't just ignore the things that we bring to you. Um, give us the grace to endure um, through those times, the things that you um, do for us, Father. We thank you for, even if we don't recognize it, the things that you don't answer because you've got a better reason, Father. Give us grace to uh, still love you for that and recognize that you know all things and you have all things in your hand, Father. Thank you for so much. Amen.